And there, on the other side of the river, quite close to him, in the middle of a little plain between two hills, he saw what must be the white witch's house. And the moon was shining brighter than ever. The house was really a small castle. It seemed to be all towers, little towers with long pointed spires on them, sharp as needles. They looked like huge dunces caps or sorcerers caps, and they shone in the moonlight with their long shadows looked strained on the snow. And Edmund began to be afraid of the house. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by one C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. And I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Just a reminder that we are talking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe today. And if this is your first time joining us, first of all, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Weird to choose chapter nine, but welcome. Yeah, yeah, weird weird choice, but, you know, we're here for it. Uh, But general spoiler warning for the Narnia series uh, as a whole, uh, as well as a heads up that we will go on tangents into other stories that we enjoy that might relate to certain plot points. Uh, And if anything is too egregious of a spoiler. We will try our best to give a spoiler warning in advance if it's too far out there. But today, we are going to be discussing chapter nine of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Witch's House. We are in her house indeed. I'll give us chapter summary. So we open on Edmund. He had eaten his fair share of dinner at the Beavers, but just couldn't get his mind off of Turkish delight. And we find out that Yes, Edmund did, in fact, hear about the plans to meet Aslan at the stone table, and then he left because hearing about Aslan made him feel uncomfortable. The narrator tells us that we shouldn't think that Edmund wanted to kill his siblings so much as eat candy and be a prince. But what can you do? One comes with the other. Shrug emoji. Edmund rationalizes to himself that the witch is probably the rightful queen anyways, and they're all just haters. She's probably better than that nasty Aslan anyway. Forgetting his coat, he sets out into the cold twilight, stumbling through snowdrifts and hitting his shins against trees and rocks as he makes his way toward the the witch's house. He makes his first policy decision as the future king of Narnia to build roads, something that Prince Caspian will see to. Spoiler alert. As he imagines his life of luxury as a king, the woods get darker and much colder, but he finds his way to a river that leads him to a valley where he finally sees it, the White Witch's house. It's really more of a small castle with towers peaked with pointed spires. As he got closer to it, he began to get a little scared, but it was too late to turn back now. Finally, he found the front door, huge and arched with great iron gates that stood open. And as he crept into the courtyard, he spooked. By a huge lion crouched in a pouncing position. He stood still and afraid, wondering why it's standing so still. And as he inched closer, he realized the lion wasn't even looking at him. It was looking at a dwarf uh, and figured that when the lion attacked the dwarf, he could go by it. Uh, and he waited and waited, but neither moved an inch. And suddenly Edmund, who we've been told many times is not very bright, Remembered what the others said about the witch turning people into stone. He realized these are statues, and which explains why they both don't move and are also are piled up with snow. 
Edmund is relieved and guesses this is probably that lion Aslan everyone was talking about. Queen has already taken care of him. And at this thought, Edmund decides to gloat, pulling out a pencil and drawing a mustache and glasses on this murder victim's body. And then going further into the house, he finds dozens more statues scattered throughout and then finds a flight of stairs leading to an open door. Across the entryway lay a large wolf. Edmund assured himself, it's just a stone wolf, like all the other stone things here. But like with many things, Edmund was wrong. The wolf growled, who's there? Stand still, stranger, and tell me who you are. Edmund, again, a stupid, stupid boy, says he's a son of Adam, that he brought news for the queen that he got his siblings into Narnia and that they are at the beavers if she really wants to meet them. The wolf, Magram, the chief of the witch's secret police, went to tell the queen and returns to tell Edmund to come in. Edmund found himself in a long, gloomy hall, also full of statues. The one nearest to the door was a small kidnapper. I, I mean, fun, fun. Uh, that Edmund wondered if might be friends with his sister. The queen asks, how dare you come alone? And Edmund explains that his siblings are staying with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in the house on the dam. She asks if that's all. And Edmund tells her that everything he heard about Aslan. The queen seems alarmed at this then readies her sledge with a harness without bells. That is an important. It's be important. That's important. Not that important, but it's important. It could be. Good. You never know. Uh, Chase, the theme of this chapter is self-rationalization. And, and, of, and now, of course, you want to know what happened to Edmund. Of course for you the, do. For Why the listeners, that's not just me making a transition. That's the first line of this chapter. Yeah. The, this chapter and the next chapter goes hard on the narration side of this. It's no longer just you're in the story. It's you're definitely being told this story. You're being told a story, and C.S. Lewis is going to let you know that he's telling you a story because there's a lot of interjection. There's a lot of uh, interruptions by yeah. the by the reader, uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, but we are now going to find out what happened to Edmund because last chapter, as you know, if you listen to our previous podcast, we are... Uh, we're, we don't know where Edmund is, but now, thank God, we're going to find out. Yeah. Uh, you know, thank, that, thank God we know what point he left now. We yes. got step by step. C.S. Lewis answered immediately all of the questions that we had about, like, how much did Edmund know? When did he leave? Where did yeah. he go? Uh, Remember he, when we said last chapter that we thought this was good writing because it was tension building, but with subtlety? Never mind. C.S. Lewis was like, I can't handle the tension. I'm so sorry. <laughs> let me let me alleviate this tension immediately. I'm, I'm sorry. This balloon is getting too big. I'm just going to have to pop it. C.S. Lewis is the guy that's like, all right, here's a cliffhanger. I'm just, I'm so sorry. He, he survives. Don't worry. He, he made it off the cliff. <laughs> We're not even to the next chapter yet. Yeah. It, but we make our way to finding out what Edmund is doing. And throughout this chapter... Uh, Edmund is like, you know, you've heard the phrase, like he's very one track minded Edmund. I will give him credit. He has two tracks right here. First track is I want Turkish delight. Oh, yeah. And the second track is I hate Peter. And those are about <laughs> his two defining personality hey, traits of the tracks you could choose to run on. Those two will keep you going in the same direction. Uh, they, they'll both yeah. get you to the witch's house. So. Yeah. And 
Edmund is as obsessed with Turkish delight as Lucy is with Tubness. That that's it's fair. Crazy. That's very fair. Like, and it's one of those things where, like, in the same way that you're like, should you be obsessed with Mr. Tubness? There are a lot of better people, probably. Yeah. Like, should you be obsessed with Turkish delight? You just it, skipped out or, or like didn't appreciate like one of the most delicious sounding meals that you could have. And oh, you're like, sure. mm, I don't know. What about crappy Turkish delight? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Although the reason he can't focus on the meal he just ate, though, was actually pretty cool. So, yeah. it, I mean, as we can probably tell with the way it's been used in this book, Turkish delight pretty much represents sin in in this mm. section of the doesn't book. Doesn't it always? Like, doesn't it always, Chase? Uh, of course. It, as you told us, it's not very good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, once you've tasted it, you can't untaste it. The book says there's nothing that spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. All it takes is the memory, this little bit of corruption that spoils your enjoyment of a perfectly good thing in front of you. Yeah. Even though you know it might not be the right choice, that longing is there and that seed is all it takes to flower into a choice like the one Edmund makes here. Yeah. I I thought it was a fairly profound thought to open the chapter on. Absolutely. For all too, of the, too bad it doesn't stay profound, but sure. you know, for all of the really you know bad actions that Edmund takes, and he's going to you know this is his worst chapter in terms of his decision making, in terms of his uh, his turn towards corruption, and um, you know his his attitude, things like that. But I also found that there's a lot of really relatable qualities inside of his poor decision making here so you first talk about like his corruption through you know quote unquote sin like he's tasted it he wants to keep coming back to it uh but then immediately after you're gonna you know we said that our theme is self-rationalization uh when we have you know convinced ourselves of something it's so easy to make excuses and justifications and it immediately says that you know he kept thinking that everyone else was uh taking intentionally taking no notice of him intentionally cold shouldering him maybe peter was uh but he says uh, like cso says they weren't but he imagined it he imagined that they were and this is really relatable that like you're like i don't know how many times i've been like oh man like these people are intentionally spiting me and like they're intentionally doing something against me only to find out like they're not really just, they're just not even considering me. They're not thinking about anything. Right. And it is a very like middle school thing to think everyone is noticing you all the time. Absolutely. It, cause, cause when you're that age, cause even like probably what Edmund's 10, like that, that age that uh, like, you feel like you're you're so awkward and uncomfortable that everyone is always going to notice the weird thing you're doing at any minute Absolutely. and like that that when you add it on to Edmund's situation where he knows he's doing something wrong is like yeah it makes sense like if you if you know you're cheating at a board game and you you think everyone is noticing you cheat, even if you're getting away with it. Sure. And then you will convince yourself that, you know what, like, it really wasn't that bad. And like, you know, yep. like, I, what I'm doing is actually fine. Uh, Get the game of life 2016. Yeah, it, that's how it goes. But, you know, from this, 
we immediately, you know, get some answers to these questions of, you know, how much did he hear and what was his experience like during the situation with the beavers before he left. And, you know, we realized that like, like he restates that this, uh, that while the other children got this amazing, really cool feeling uh, whenever the name of Aslan was brought up, Edmund gets a terrible one. He feels mysterious and horrible and uh, he doesn't like this Aslan figure. Uh, and then we, thank goodness, C.S. Lewis lets us know how much he heard immediately. Uh, and uh, he, he feel, we realized that uh, he heard everything about Aslan and the stone table. But then just before C.S. Lewis starts going on to his little racist, confusing rant, uh, about the witch's origins and, uh, you know, who, who's constituted as a human and, you know, uh, who's, who is the, the product of a fake woman named Lilith. Like, uh, he, he leaves before all that. So, you know, lucky. I'm glad he didn't hear that part. Hey, me too. It's for the best. For all of the bad decisions Edmund makes, I would want to spare him from the weirdness of, of that conversation. He's already having bad decision making. He doesn't need that to uh, to get hey, mixed in there. Hey, but he's not that bad, Chase. You mustn't think that yeah. he's so bad that he wants his siblings turned to stone. Yeah, it's not that he wants them murdered. It's that he wants candy. And like, he also wants them to be punished, but not like that bad. Maybe just subjugation. Like, yeah. Maybe just I mean, servitude. Look, let's be real. If it was Peter's body turned to stone, he would have done the same thing of drawing turn- a mustache and glasses on Is he going to turn a blind eye to it? Maybe. Neither here nor there. But as long as he can build roads. Dude, I will get to his kiggly decisions here in yep, a little bit, yep. but I respect that one. Like, <laughs> it, it's not the worst thing to he like, immediately follow some infrastructure. Yeah. Sure. A little early for him to be making these decisions, but sure. yeah. yeah, but he, you know, we, we get this, you know, quote that he doesn't really want that bad of stuff to happen to him. Uh, but he, he starts, you see this, this mental process throughout this chapter of him really starting to learn about who the witch is and how she is, but justifying his own thoughts. And uh, he's, it says he managed to believe or pretended he believed that, she wouldn't do anything very bad to him. And then he goes on this little tangent where he's, yeah. you know, making a bunch of quotes. And I felt like it was really, uh, it was really apt for how people uh, act now. Uh, oh, whenever yeah. you're like defending something where you're like, I, I don't know if I should be defending this, but I feel like I have to. Uh, he says like, you know, probably most things they say about her aren't true. And, you know, who knows how, like the reliability of these character witnesses, like, um, you know, well, she was really nice to me. So she can't have been that bad. Like she can't be that bad or like, you know, she's better than the alternative, which is this awful guy named Aslan apparently. And like immediately we're talking bad about her, just her enemies, the opposition. Obviously they're going to say bad stuff about her. Um, And so like with all of that, I was like, man, this is, I think, a really important thing for us to at least acknowledge to say, like, it's important for us to seek and understand what is like true and reliable from any news source, you know, from any uh, person when we're, you know, hearing about someone like do your own research because like Edmund brings up some decent points, but also he's very skewed. 
where it's like he is the one misinterpreting things and he is the one intentionally refusing to see that the wicked witch is actually wicked uh oh yeah and and like you said this is very modern like this is full-on like fake news stuff mm -hmm. um but yeah he he has to make himself feel better for the thing he's doing like, and we and it acknowledges that he knows the witch is bad and cruel yeah but like uh, it's so interesting to read it because he can't consider that he might be wrong because if he's wrong, then he's putting people he cares about in danger. So this has to be the right thing because otherwise like it would be bad. It would be a bad look for him. Like he needs yeah. this to be true. Therefore it's the truth he believes. Absolutely. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. <laughs> I learned that from big bang theory. It means wow. if, it means if this is the end that I need to happen, then these must be the facts that because they support that end. And sure. it is very relevant to our current times. And yeah, it's it's an interesting component to this book because it's not a simple thing that Edmund's doing here. He's like he's jumping through hoops. Yeah. No, it's it's for sure a thing. And so I have a question for you because I'm interested in this. Uh, it says that, you know, he's trying to make these excuses in his mind for what he's doing, but he knows it wasn't a very good excuse because he knows that the witch is actually bad and cruel. Does does this make him better in terms of him being more relatable or worse, knowing that he is intentionally following someone evil? I think... I don't know. I I don't want to put him into the clean, like good or bad category. Sure, like sure. I think he's very human here because he's a child. Yeah, for for one thing, he is a child, but also this is something that we all do. Like every single person listening to this podcast, both of us included, have decided that we're going to be on like X team and this is the way we're going. And if like refuse to, or at least really struggle with recognizing that the valid points on the other side are truly valid, even if there is part of us that has sympathy for them. And I think that's, that's what's happening here. We're like, I don't really want to say, Oh, well it's worse for Edmund because he, unconsciously or subconsciously or truly in his heart of hearts knows that she's not great because I think, I think he's kind of locked the parts of his brain in that need to be locked in for him to get to the point he's going to get to. Like this is the path that he's chosen to go down. And like he says, when he gets closer to the witch's house and starts to get scared in his mind, it's too late to go back. In reality, it's not. In reality, he could have turned around at any moment and mm -hmm. it would have actually made things so much easier. But because he's already gone down this road, he's he's told himself that this is the lot he's chosen. And by going down this road, I hope you mean that he's going down no road. Because yeah, no, he's, 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 he's trudging through snowdrifts and every time he touches a tree, it comically <laughs> falls down his back. 
and he blames Peter for this. Understandable. <laughs> this is uh, this is a, a funny little section uh, because you know he first starts off uh, by doing something very very relatable to any child or like young kid, where he goes out completely unprepared for this physical situation because he forgets his coat in the midst of a blizzard, uh, which is a very childlike thing to do. Uh, but then it just says it was pretty bad when he reached the far side of the river, like when he starts his journey. And this is the, I think uh, the, we, we mentioned this off pod uh, where this is where C.S. Lewis really starts diving into his Tolkien-esque descriptions of, uh, of, scenery and narration that really doesn't matter at all but yeah, it's pointless it's, it's pointless. so pointless however we you know we get to this really like kind of funny because it's unfortunate for Edmund stretch where it's like everything bad that could happen is happening uh where it's like it's he's cold it's dark uh it's blizzarding there's no road so he's slipping and tripping and sliding and banging his shins on things and like you said every time he hits a tree branch snow falls on him and he's like peter <laughs> why would you do this to me which like peter's got nothing to do with this yeah peter uh, is miles away miles away but i love this section where he's like he's like it would he he would have given up if not for you know trying to think through this this moment of ambition for him as a king. And he starts thinking about the decrees that he would make. And the first one he starts with is I'm going to put some roads in here. Great thing for a king to do. Like that's great infrastructural improvement. Like I support this. And you're like, man, maybe Edmund wouldn't be so, but Oh, nope. Immediately makes it worse. Cause he makes every, every other decision is not for the good of society, which like, granted, the roads are good for him in this moment. But uh, it, he's like, oh man, I'm gonna have this awesome palace. I'm gonna have all these cars. I'm gonna have a personal cinema. Uh, I'm gonna have uh, laws against beavers, <laughs> which is so funny <laughs> to me. A good idea. I'm gonna Seems sub- right. I'm gonna subjugate Peter, uh, make him my servant. Like, it's it's very younger brother kind of stuff, but like I thought the the mention of like laws against the beavers and dams like is so funny. <laughs> uh, he just wants to keep the water flowing in Narnia. He maybe maybe or he uh bec- you know he didn't hear the racist uh, ploys of the beavers, but maybe he has his own uh you know personal biases and vendettas against beavers, uh, and you know just was like nope. Get them out of here. We don't like them. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't take kindly to your type beavers. Uh, and so he's just, he's tired of it. Uh, and, and he's ready to just, you know, put some great legislation into place. Man. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how he's planning to get these sports cars into Narnia, but uh, if he, sure. if he can do it, may, maybe he's, uh, he's like Uncle Andrew. He can just plant the wheel of a sports car and it'll grow a sports car. He's tree. still got to get a wheel, but yeah. you know, well, uh, I mean, it's easier to get a wheel through a wardrobe than a car. At, as we've, you know, noted, like he's not the brightest. Uh, no. He he's probably a little overzealous with his plans more so than his thought process. And that brings us to uh, him actually seeing the witch's house, right? So this whole time, like she's introduced herself to him as the queen. Like that's, she's like, I am the queen of Narnia. You should come to my house. 
And I'm pretty sure like this whole passage kind of reads as if Edmund is surprised that it's a castle. And I yeah. think he was I think he was like, oh, like she lives in a quaint little hut like the beavers do. Like, no, she's the queen, bro. Why would you expect her to live in anything besides a castle? <laughs> Just expecting her to live in a tutor. Like yeah. it's uh I don't know. It it really was odd because yeah, you're right. There there's an element of surprise. It's well, he saw her house, but it was really more like a small castle. Like, yeah. 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 She's the queen. If she's the queen or, or the dictator or anyone, she's going to have a bigger house than you. She's going to have you, a castle, if not like a palace. Yeah. Know? Otherwise, she's not doing a good job of being queen. Like, like she, the whole deal is elevating herself above other people. Right. Like, it, I was just like, duh. Like, obviously. But, you know, he walks up to the to, to the house you know, as heavy sarcasm as I can put on that. Uh, and the great iron gates are already wide open, which if you've listened to our magician's nephew pod, uh, I can only assume that, you know, they were locked previously and she locked herself out and she just blasted them open out of fury. Uh, and said, anger. It said they're open. They're not dust, but uh, uh, they are not dust, but you know, they're, I think they're, I think she just got upset and just, you know, give them a great magic boot uh, yeah. and just flung them open. But before uh, we go through those gates, this is the point where Edmund finally starts to get a little scared. Yeah, like, that's very true. The first moment where he has any kind of sense of anything other than just like like pride and gloating or like, oh, they can't tell me. Like it's uh yeah, it, it's kind of you see the cracks in his denial here, and like this is just starting to break through that. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, fear. Fear tells us something, right? Like this is yeah. fear happens when our bodies are responding to the potential of danger, and something in Edmund is very clearly sensing that this could end badly, and yes. he refuses to listen to it. Though he's like, "Nah, this is again." It's he's rational. Gonna be fine, but yeah. he he can't listen to the fear because if he acknowledges that the fear might be telling him something, if he if he could be wrong, he's admitting that. He's on the side of evil in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout this, the rest of this chapter, you're really going to see the moments where it's like, Edmund, you should take stock of your situation and make the wisest decision. Now, granted, this is a 27 year old speaking to a, what what have we agreed that Edmund is probably like 10. I I keep landing around 10. So like a 10 year old, 10 year olds are not great at taking wise, uh, discerning, looks at their surroundings and making the best decision because uh, I say this with all love, 10 year olds are dumb and they're idiots. Uh, And uh, as we've learned, Edmund is uh, particularly on the less wise side of a 10 year old. Um, Doesn't he end up being Edmund the wise? Is that him? I think, I think Susan is the wise. Uh, I can't, I can't, I think it's that whatever he gets is going to be an interesting uh, quality because We'll, we'll uh, get there. That's at the end of this book. Yeah, those are those are the like qualities. Spoiler alert: that um, you know, Aslan will bestow upon the kings and queens of Narnia, i.e., the pe- the Pevensey children, the peasants, uh, the pe- the peasantsy. Uh, uh, no, but I yeah, I don't remember which one Edmund is. That's a great point. Uh, I'm excited to figure out or to hear which one he is because it's a it's a load of of garbage regardless yeah. <laughs> uh unless it's like edmund the the simple or like this is one of those situations where you've got to grow into your name 
Yeah, it's uh, he's speaking some life and truth into his future. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, he begins to be afraid. And as he makes his way through these uh, iron gates, he sees a terrifying lifelike lion that's just chilling, ready to pounce. And he is frozen in fear. Yeah. He's frozen as, for a as long time. As is the lion. <laughs> He's <laughs> almost like a statue. You you could say, but almost. then Edmund's like, "Oh, thank God, he's frozen because he's waiting to pounce on this dwarf, who is also frozen like a and, statue." And mind you, both of whom are piled up with snow. Chase, you got to put yourself in the mindset of a hunter, of a, <laughs> of, of of an apex predator. I'm, you I'm are, in the mindset of a <laughs> farmer here. But, uh, if, you are, if you are ready and you're stalking your prey, you don't want any distraction to scare your, your prey away. So yeah. this lion is, is just crouched, letting the snow fall on him, lulling this dwarf into a sense of comfortability before, bam, he strikes. You, you know they say if you don't move, they can't see you. <laughs> That's a... I believe that is a uh, a reference and a quote uh, belonging to Drax, the destroyer from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, where if he is if he stands still enough, he has achieved a state of perfect invisibility. <laughs> I was thinking of Jurassic Park, but yeah, I'm also, sure that's true too. Also true. Uh, uh, welcome to Jurassic Park. Yeah. I, I just love that Edmund stands there for like 10 minutes. This yeah. is not a short amount of time that he's waiting to see if they move. At, there's at least one instance where it says five minutes passed. And that's not like the very beginning. That's like after a while. And yeah, look, Edmund, maybe you should have figured this out. So you were told the witch's house is full of these victim statues. Why did this take so long? Also, the plan he comes up with is messed up. Like, he's going to let the lion kill this dwarf as a hey, distraction. As we learned last chapter, like, can you even trust dwarfs? <laughs> Do you, what are no. we? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is, this is, I don't mean to uh, even satirically uh, <laughs> make racist propaganda. Yeah, uh, that's uh, not a good look, Cal. Yeah. I, I want the listeners to know that was a joke and I apologize for it. Uh, but uh, Edmund, yeah, like he's just going to let this lion chomp down on this dwarf. But then he's like, oh, psh, duh, like statues, like they're obviously frozen, which like he's very casual about these living beings being turned to stone. Yeah. And look, you got to imagine that he doesn't make the connection that these are living beings that are turned to stone. You but have like, to hope. You have oh to. Like, Which, otherwise, this we'll is get there in, a, killer in the making. Yeah, we'll get there in a moment. But, like, before that, he thinks that this is probably Aslan. Yeah, and, that awful Aslan. Yeah, checks, oh, checks for lightning in the clouds to that, smite that Edmund Aslan. immediately. Man, thank God that the queen already took care of him. Why would anyone ever be scared of Aslan? Yeah, poo-poo on Aslan. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's just, it is helpful to note the juxtaposition of Edmund and Peter here, where this is Edmund being like, 
why would anyone be scared of Aslan? Whereas Peter, last chapter, was like, I'm a little scared of Aslan, but I'm excited to meet him. Yeah. And like that that reverence versus gloating that that's here is re- really reflects the the postures that we're supposed to see in them. Yeah. And and that really makes Edmund's next actions even worse and even like more disrespectful cuz like it's readers, wild. You have, listeners you have to uh go into the mindset like Edmund now thinks that this lion that is frozen is Aslan, the creator of all of Narnia, the the emperor, like the the lion, the great lion, right? And he gets a lead pencil out. And but apparently he was like, carrying the whole time. Like you say the whole time. Not a coat, but he's got a pencil. And if you have ever worked in students ministry, this is the most par for the course thing for a middle school student to do. He gets his pencil and draws a mustache and glasses on what he believes to be frozen in statue form as land. You know, there's worse things he could have drawn on it. There, You're not wrong. Uh, there are uh, words, symbols that would have been much more disrespectful. Yep. However, the, the, like, the irreverence and the disrespect still shines through. Uh, and which is like, if you're a middle school student, you're like hilarious. This is like great prank, Edmund. Well done. <laughs> Perfectly Best executed. Best ever happened. Perfectly executed. Uh, and then Edmund looks at the lion who, remember, he thinks is Aslan and is like, huh, thought this would have been a little bit more fun. Like, I enjoy yeah. being spiteful generally, but I don't this time. Man, it's almost like you have the subtle realization that this is not a statue, but one of the witch's victims. But a, a real Ed, lion who was turned to stone. Edmund is essentially vandalizing a dead body here. He, let's just yeah. not let's not miss that. He, yeah. He's vandalizing a dead body. He walked into a morgue, pulled out a sharpie, and drew on the body. Hey, great prank. <laughs> I got him. Got him. He feels so stupid right now. You can't even say anything, you idiot, because yeah. you're dead. Now, what happens when Aslan wakes the statues up? Is this a tattoo now? Yeah. So uh, in the movie, th- this happens, right? Uh, where does, the, does he draw on it in the movie? He does. And really, the, the lion wakes up. I don't think it's a tattoo, but I think of it like if you drew Sharpie on your skin uh, and like it like fades with time. This lion has like this goofy, you know, set of glasses and like a wonky mustache that's drawn on uh, by, you know, a child uh, while he's like fighting in the battle. So I think, yeah, it does stay. What Uh, a detail. I do not remember that from this movie. Great, great Easter egg, uh, you know, a great callback. But he, he feels sad about this line. And then he decides to go throughout the rest of the courtyard where he sees dozens Dozens of statues of all different kinds of creatures, which is terrifying. Yeah, and this is just the courtyard. Her entire house is decorated with these people. She's like, listen, White Witch, you need to hire an interior decorator. Yeah. Like you We could really re- warm this space up, maybe get some shiplap in here. <laughs> shiplap, man. That's a if I've watched any HGTV, I've watched all of it. So I'm aware so, of what. You, 
I mean, this is an audio medium, but you can see the ship lap in the background here. I can see it. And it looks great. And, you know, the as opposed to doing that, the witch is like, I hear you. I hear about the ship lap and the open concepts, uh, you know, updated appliances. But do you know what instead I could do? Frozen corpses all around my premises. Mm. How is that? Man, moody. It's good. It's moody. And it's so like, one, this is terrifying. Two, this is also a bold move. Like, granted, we've talked about how hubris is often the downfall of the wicked, and it will be for the white witch. But like, say something happens to her power or her magic while she is in her home. She now has dozens, if not hundreds, of her enemies in her home, now alive. Keep your enemies closer, Kel. I've heard that. I also don't think that that necessarily means physically, uh, but you know, to each their own. But yeah, this keep, is a, keep your keep your skeletons in your closet. It's what they say. This is a horrifying scene. Like this is yeah. Edmund is walking through a serial killer's castle where she has frozen inevitable. Like like you know, spoiler alert. If not for Aslan, would have you know effectively murdered all of these beings. Uh, of way like all different sorts, uh, she doesn't discriminate on who she kills, uh, which you know, good for her. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, Kel, she really did them a favor because she helped them to live longer. Because when Aslan unfreezes them, they're going to be the same age that they were when she froze them, whether they it happened fifty years ago or last weekend. Man, you're not. She's wrong. doing so, them a favor. So really, like the people who, if you've watched uh, Infinity War Endgame, like. It is a blessing, spoiler alert, if you were snapped as opposed to Unless the you're ones in high that were school. left on Earth. If you're in high school, it means that all your classmates are now in college and the children who were five unless years you're, below you are now Unless you're age. in Spider-Man Homecoming, in which case all of the important people were also all snapped. Anyone yeah. who didn't matter, they can graduate and move on. Of course, but there's only like three important people, so it, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, but if half the population is snapped and there's like eight main characters that you're aware of from Spider-Man 1 to Spider-Man 2 and they all also didn't get snapped, statistically, this is bogus. Like, yeah. But whatever. But, al- but also, uh, the first Spider-Man movie ha- had a weird time jump in it too. So what can you do? Yeah. It's the- all a mess. Marvel really didn't need to do that, but they did Two, it. two years later wasn't needed. <laughs> Wasn't, but you know what? It's okay because I still love those movies. They, but they are great. This Tom is Holland a ter- is a great Spider-Man. Great Spider-Man. This is a so this is a terrifying scene. And this, if you Chase, I don't know how much you remember the movie, but this scene in the movie almost made me poop my pants when I, this first this first came out when I because I was a child watching yeah. this, uh, and it was like like because Edmund walks through the courtyard and he makes his way to this front door. And there's a, a giant wolf laying across the the like archway, or like right in front of the door. And he's like, ah, it's also a statue. And then this is a great jump scare in oh, the yeah. movie. So like, good. It, I do Edmund, remember this. Edmund's I remember like, this and the frozen tumness scarf yes. billowing in the wind. Yes. So Edmund goes to step over the wolf and it like jumps up and growls at him. And I, like as a child, I was like, like it was horrible. Like, and then I was like, uh, I meant uh, ah, because my voice has was was much higher at that point in time. Uh, but we we meet officially 
Magrim, captain of the not-so-secret police. Yeah, yeah, which, again, like, not a secret police if everyone knows about it. But that's not even my gripe here. The narrator calls Magrim the captain of the witch's secret police, which means True. that she's going by the witch, not just the queen. Like, it you should know. be the queen's secret police. But yeah. doesn't it say something if you call yourself a witch when naming your CS, organizations? C.S. Lewis kind of like, he doesn't have a ton of consistency here in how he refers to her. Because sometimes it's the queen, sometimes it's the witch. Yeah. Uh, and like, it, it's, it's, it just kind of like gets a little wonky here and there. A good but, author would pick their poison for like when people on her side are calling her the witch or uh, people on her side are calling her the queen. They call her the queen, but people against her call her the witch. Kind of like a, a Harry Potter, Voldemort, Dark Lord situation. He who must not be named versus the Dark Lord. You know, one of these conveys more terror. One of this conveys a little bit more reverence. Yeah, uh, is Snape a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. Yeah, he's a bad guy. No, there's he, no there's no yeah, debate. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he is not a good person. Like... Does does one brave thing? Great. Yeah, yeah. It, Still a bad he, guy. You can do a good thing and also be a bad person. He literally bullies children for fun. He bullies one of them so bad that his greatest fear, and this is a child whose parents were tortured and are in a insane asylum because of how bad they were tortured. His greatest fear is Snape. That's how bad he is. Yep. Abusive so, teacher. Not no, not no good. argument here. But uh, so Magrim uh, is like, you know, stand still, stranger. Tell me who you are. And Edmund goes f- like full Takashi 6ix9ine and immediately is snitching. He is like, I'm Edmund, the son of Adam. Uh, my All of my siblings are here. I was told to bring them to the White Witch. I mean, the queen uh, of Narnia. And they're all at the Beaver's house. And he's like, like Magrim is just like, okay, you just Hold told on. me everything. <laughs> I'll go talk to Her Majesty. Edmund, keep some cards closer to the chest. He, Edmund is the guy who's like, these are all my cards at the poker table. Please do what you will. All in. I have nothing. And then everyone's like, why would you tell us this? Like, uh, but Mogram goes, stand still on the threshold as you value your life. Another red flag. Uh, maybe you should be taking stock of your situation, Edmund. Yeah. Maybe if the first person you meet in this place threatens you, it's not a good place to be. Dude, okay. So I was thinking about this as I was, because uh, uh, he then goes, when he comes back, he goes, come in, come in, fortunate favorite of the queen, or else not so fortunate. And I imagine him putting his pinky to his mouth like a Dr. Evil giant wolf. And for me, Chase, this is a fun game of would you rather. Who would you choose to spend your time with? A giant Nazi Gestapo wolf or a racist turncoat giant beaver? See, that's tough because one is wearing it on their sleeve and the other is uh, is you've got to cringe at at – their moments because <sighs> both are racist both aren't great one is more i don't know i think you have to pick the beaver unfortunately. I, I have to pick the beavers because at least 
Maybe we can have some conversations about their dinner topics. Sure. There, maybe maybe some we can do some reconciliation. Yeah. Maybe we can. Afford, maybe it's out of ignorance, not he's out also of hatred. Not, he's also actively not trying to murder you. Uh, fair, fair. But I mean, I'm, know, I'm used to being around wolves, but I'm not used to being around uh, Nazis, and I really rather not to start not start hanging out with Nazis. It's not in the plans. Not in the plans. Uh, I think that's a good plan, Chase. Uh, but so as Edmund, you know, follows this giant Gestapo wolf through the palace, he sees more statues, but in particular, he sees one statue that yeah. is. It looks like a fawn. It's got a little scarf on. Uh, it's real sweet. Uh, yeah. And he can't help but think, I wonder if this was that fawn friend. Hmm. And he, and it's, it's a, it's as a reader, I think it's supposed to be this sad moment where you're yeah. like, oh no. Shout like, out to Tumnus. This is his oh, no, best Tumnus. scene yet. Yeah. I was like, oh no, Tumnus is frozen. And then for me, I was like, oh no, the child kidnapper is being punished. Yeah, I was like, oh, no, no. This, this seems right. This is appropriate. Like, this if if this is, you know, the equivalent of prison, it's like, yeah, like, deserved. I mean, he, we know he's going to survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing time served. Like, it's, it's fine. I, I have no qualms with this. No qualms. You know, is he effectively, you know, dead until Aslan, you know, saves everyone? Sure, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Coma. It is what it is, man. Yeah. Uh, but then we come to, I think Edmund has to look at this situation and there's no other interpretation other than you are now in the wrong, right? Because he is now seeing the White Witch, the queen, for as she truly is. He has his like first interaction with her since seeing her on her sleigh with bells. Uh, but she goes, how dare you come alone? Didn't I tell you to bring me others? And Edmund, again, full snitch mode, uh, is going, but I, well, I did bring them. They're just over at the beaver's house on top of the river. Now, remember, my theory, I think, only gets strengthened as this book continues because the witch is very aware of where the beaver's house is and who they are. Yep. And it says a slow, cruel smile came over her face, and then she goes, is that all your news? And he goes, no. And then he tells her all about Aslan. Yeah. Uh, Ed- Edmund and clearly hasn't heard that snitches get stitches. Snitches get stitches, dude. That's rules to live by, uh, you know, wisdom, and also just like, you know, street street wisdom. Uh, but this is something that actually shakes the queen. She goes, what? Aslan? Aslan, is this is, if this is true, like, or like if, if, if I find that you've lied to me, like she's shook right now. Yeah. I mean, and she generally has no chill. I mean, this conversation he, started with, how dare you come by yourself? That's like, true. It's, I mean, I don't think we've ever, you know, defined the queen as a chill hang. Uh, <laughs> but she is very shook at this moment. She obviously remembers the bungled lamppost incident of Narnian creation. Uh, so she's she's aware of who Aslan is and her standing in comparison to him. Uh, and she is frightened. And then the chapter ends with one of my favorite quotes because uh, it doesn't sound at all like it belongs in this book, but she goes, she, she's talking to her dwarf servant. She goes, make ready our sledge and use the harness without bells. 
This sounds to me, Chase, like a Christmas movie where something bad has happened at the North Pole. There's been some sort of attack or affront, and the elves and Santa have been wrong, and they are now ready to fight back. Yeah. Oh, just, just. Bring me my sleigh without the bells. Uh, this is this is the Santa Claus four. Um, it's yeah. I mean, just wait, Kel. It's going to be a Christmas movie. It but, just the next chapter, it will be. Yeah, but I just thought that that line was so funny to me, and it, it's not it really intended is. to be so. And what a way to end the chapter! Because also, like. The only reason that's in there is to set up the the like, next chapter, the weirdness of next chapter. Yeah, like there's no other reason. It's really funny. Uh, you have anything else before we dive further up and further in? I think I'm good. Cool. Uh, I'm gonna start because I'm picking off, uh, picking up right where you left off. It was either last chapter, or the chapter before. Um, I think it was the last chapter, but uh, this is like you mentioned. Uh, with Edmund in the, you know, Last Supper being playing the Judas role, right? He has left uh, the the dinner with the beavers in the previous chapter. And now we see him go full turncoat. He goes full Judas in this moment. Uh, and he has sold out his brothers and sisters and Aslan for 30 pieces of Turkish delight. Uh, he has gone full Judas in this moment where he is uh, going, he is looking for self-interest. He is looking for self-gain and he is willing to sell out what he knows to be good and true to someone he knows to be wicked and evil because it's going to profit him the most, seemingly, uh, above other people, especially those who are, uh, you know, not favorable to him like Peter. Uh, and this is his full Judas, you know, betraying Jesus moment. And we're going to see throughout the rest of this book, uh, you know, his, the consequences of this action, uh, which is going to spoiler alert. If you don't know anything about this story, this single action is going to lead to Aslan being murdered by the white witch because the white witch, uh, you know, claims all traitors, you know, how that applies to Tumnus and the Beavers and, you know, how it doesn't apply to them and not Edmund. We'll talk about that uh, in several chapters, I'm how, sure. How she got that written into the rules? Yeah, I don't Who know knows? how she got this contract, but, you know, whatever. Uh, but because of Edmund's treachery, in this moment, it's going to directly lead to Aslan being killed, just as Judas's betrayal de- directly leads to Jesus being murdered on a cross. So... This is where you start seeing the the pinnacle of Judas uh, and like the betrayal of sin towards Jesus metaphors with Edward. Yeah. And for my further up and further in, I went with uh, just kind of our theme for of rationalization for this chapter. Uh, so I, I read a few a book a few years back by a guy named Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, and he he's a social a social psychologist, and he was trying to explain uh, why moral, intelligent, generally good people could be so divided over issues like politics and religion, uh, how, how people could seemingly be, two different people could both seemingly be making good choices with good rationalization, but be going completely opposite directions. And 
one of the big insights of the book, something he demonstrated with a lot of research and studies behind it, is that people don't actually tend to think rationally through a decision before they make it. But instead, rather, they make their decisions based on gut instinct and then rationalize it to defend their decision as if they had thought it through. Like there, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, and he has some helpful categories of the types of gut reactions. He talks about like taste buds that may lead to someone moving in a certain direction rather than another. But the thing I thought was relevant here was this idea that we tend to lead with our gut, with our instincts, over our rationality, even if we don't think so. Even if we think that we are completely logical beings, the reality is most of the time, we're we're going with instinct first and then and then like afterward justifying it. And that's what Edmund was doing in this chapter. He's decided the queen was his team. She gave him candy. She told him what he wanted to hear, and he followed his instincts to trust her. And even when he was presented with all the counter evidence in the world to why this was a bad call, he kept rationalizing and rationalizing because he could deny the base or desire there. Like this is C.S. Lewis showing his understanding of people in this story. Edmund is just like us. It should lead us to stop and consider when we hear someone disagreeing with us, do they have a point? Like if I hadn't already decided this was my opinion, can I see where they're coming from? Like, can I give them the benefit of the doubt and maybe consider the other side here? I think that thinking like that could save our world a lot of grief and argument. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting to see kind of the social psychology side of this chapter it interspersed with the middle school hijinks. Well, Chase, you've heard the news. You've set yourself in your, in your mind. And now it's time to prepare the sled. But this time, take off the bells. Chase, oh. as we are uh, in route, to the beaver's house where we will, uh, you know, inevitably find those wicked Pevensey children. Uh, sure. Can you tell our listeners where they can find and, uh, you know, follow us on uh, to, to get more information? Yeah, absolutely. You can find our podcast pretty much wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, all, all the places. Um and we would love if you rate us and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. Also, if you want to engage with us outside of the podcast, we are on Instagram, at Chronicles of Podcasts, where you can like our posts, you can leave a comment, leave a thought. Uh, yeah, we love to interact with you guys. But until next time, uh, we'll see you when we talk about Chapter 10, The Spell Begins to Break. Oh, boy, will it. Merry Christmas. Well, I don't think anyone's going to rob me today, but I mean, my brother's house burned down over the weekend, so stranger things have happened. Bro, you know? that I saw that. That's crazy, man. Are they okay? And like, I mean, yeah, I know they got married, and yeah, they're they're good. They're married. They're in Aspen right now. But yeah, we were at dinner with them and some friends who came in from out of town uh, for the wedding on Friday night, mm -hmm. and they get like a notification on their phone from their, uh, they had ring security, and 
they got this notification that there was something moving in their kitchen. And that's only a motion sensor. It wasn't like a video thing, but they're like, is, is someone breaking into, into our, our house? Yeah. And then their back door sensor went off saying the back door was open. And they're like, oh, someone is definitely breaking in right now. So they call the police. They're checking in on that. And then they get a call back that their house is burning down. And yeah, they left, they left dinner early. I would imagine so. Yeah. 